this morning is to finish up poisonings, overdose, and to do a little bit on animal bites and stings and things along that line. This is a pretty large presentation. We list it under toxicology for the simple reason this is going to involve the mechanisms of most of those things we talked about the other day, but we're going to focus more on the treatments. So how to handle patients who have been uh, accidentally overdosed or exposed to some toxic substance uh, that would require you getting involved with them. So um, we'll wade through all of this. It, it's mostly grouped into clusters. You know, the specifics we'll try and identify as, as we talk about, you know, hydrocarbons and, and things like that. So, all right, look at this scenario. This is a pretty typical scenario for a response in a situation like this. And when you get down to the last two lines, they've got a list of her medications. Now, can you identify some of the groups that those meds come from? Yep, she's got a beta blocker. She's got some tricyclic antidepressants. She's got a calcium channel blocker. Yeah, pain med that fits. It's, it's a little more than just an analgesic, though. What? Is it Sort of, yeah. It's a narcotic. It's a narcotic. Is there another side What? Another side uh, Yeah. Yeah. So she's on some psych meds, um, beta blockers, narcotics. She's got a little bit of everything here. So just given this drug list, let's say you're taking your sample history. You're working this patient through. She's unresponsive. Her respiratory rate is depressed. Um, her pupils are three millimeters equal and very sluggish. And you're looking up and down this med list. What are you starting to think about? Well, Narcan's certainly a consideration. Which of those drugs would fit into that? Yeah, the hydrocortone would probably respond to the Narcan. But sodium bicarb might be a consideration for which drugs? The Zoloft and the amitriptyline. Those tricyclics can, can make them very acidic, very toxic. Um, what would make you think about her presentation that the narcotics might not be as big of an issue as you think they are? Well, narcotics certainly lead to respiratory depression, so that could be an indicator, but her pupils, the fact that they're three millimeters, now that's pretty good size, okay? And you will get used to looking in people's eyes and having a pretty good feeling for what their pupils a normal size is. Now if you look at each other right now in this dark room, what would you estimate the size of the pupils to be? 
Yeah, pretty close to three. Four is getting pretty big. Um, five is almost fully dilated. But narcotics make the pupils do what? Constrict. They would be pinpoint constricted if, if she had a lot of narcotics on board. So, that may not be as big of an issue as we think. All right, so what are your immediate priorities for her? Yeah, airway, breathing, circulation. So how would we manage her airway? Yeah, whatever way she'll tolerate. You know, she is unresponsive, but, you know, if you stick an oral airway in her mouth, which would be a consideration, I'm guessing she'll probably spit that thing out. You know, she's probably still got a gag reflex at this point. So we do need to protect her airway. Anybody who's unconscious and non-responsive cannot control their own airway, and we have to take care of that. So what would be another consideration? Yeah, nasal airway would probably be the best choice in this situation, followed by, once you place that, what's the purpose of it? Yeah, you're going to put some high-flow O2 on her. And what would you choose to use? Yeah, a non-rebreather mask, and you would probably set that at 15 liters per minute. Okay, so you've got that controlled, but what else are you worried about? What, what might come down the road? Yeah, we may lose the airway altogether, so we have to be prepared to possibly intubate her um, if we get to that point. Two things could happen in this situation is one, she could quit breathing altogether. Two, she could start to vomit. So we would have to maintain this in, in whatever way uh, would be necessary in that. So suction would be something to be concerned about at this. Yeah. If you got somebody tube and they start uh, throwing up, does that tube usually come out or does it compromise the tube at all? doesn't compromise the tube. That's the reason it's there. So once it's placed into the trachea and that bulb is inflated beyond the vocal cords, that seals off anything from getting into the lungs. So that's the whole reason that you would put that there. So if she would vomit, you have controlled her airway. The only way air is getting in is what you put in the top of that tube. So unless vomit or that tube would become dislodged or the bulb uh, the cuff would break. Um, that's pretty secure at that point. That's as secure as we can get it. So, no, that wouldn't compromise that at all. But it's something to be prepared for. Uh, we don't know which direction this lady's going to turn. So we have to be prepared. And everything begins with airway. So I'm thinking suction should be uh, out and available and ready, as well as your innovation equipment should be close by. Uh, in case she takes a turn for the worse. All right, what additional things do we need to know? Boy, because when you get, yeah, blood glucose is a, is a good, good thing to check at this point. So, yeah, blood sugar would be appropriate. And it's appropriate in anybody who's got an altered level of consciousness. But think about when you get this lady to the hospital, and the team begins to pounce, what questions are they going to ask of you? Remember, you're the one who is on the scene. You're the only one who gets to see this patient 
in their home environment. So what information is that team at the hospital going to want out of you? They're going to want all the empty bottles, if they are in fact empty. Yeah, where she was found, what she was surrounded by, what it looked like, was there any other indicators such as alcohol bottles, beer cans, uh, sign of a struggle, notes, suicide type notes, uh, any indication that this might have been deliberate? Both. Usually we take it with us, uh, but law enforcement typically will be on a scene like this because for the most part it's an uncontrolled setting until you get in there. Uh, it just depends on the way the information is dispatched, but for the most part uh, law enforcement will be there. And if they are, then they're going to take the note. Um, but you need to see it and you need to know that it's there. Um, the police officer typically will bring that with them to the hospital and share that information with the doctor and, and so on and so forth. But uh, if that's there and the police aren't on scene, then you need to get a hold of it because that's evidence that, that would indicate what's going on in this circumstance. Um, what else? <coughs> Yeah, the time. The time is a huge indicator. Is how long has she had this stuff on board? Why would that be a factor? Yeah, how far into her system it's been digested because that's going to drive the way they approach caring for this patient. You know, if they use charcoal or they use gastric lavage or if they just do a whole bowel irrigation or however they're going to do this, um, is going to be based on the amount of time this toxin has been in her system. Okay, so we've got who. We've got a pretty good idea of what. We're asking questions that revolve around when. What's the other one? Who, what, when, where, why, and and how much? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. So we want to know how this was ingested or how it entered her body. Um, was it deliberate? Was it accidental? Was this something she did to herself or something that someone else did to her? Okay, all of that needs to occur to you. Now whether you choose to ask the questions right out you need to be thinking along those lines because things aren't always what they seem to be in situations like this. Okay, so look at the bottom bullet. We give her charcoal. I mean, that's a powerful absorbent. That would, that would absorb the toxins and um, help remove them from her system, but what's the issue with her level of consciousness. Yeah, it's altered. So we don't know if she can swallow or know anything about this. So no, we won't be using that. What about Ipecac? 
Yep, same criteria there, and the chances are we aren't going to use it anyway. What, what are the issues that surround Ipecac? Yeah, it's an emetic, so it's going to make them puke, and usually we have to wait a while for it to work, and the whole time we're waiting to see if it works, they're absorbing more toxins. Uh, Narcan? Certainly wouldn't hurt, would it? Okay, we've got an altered level of consciousness. We've got a coma of unknown ideology here. So we suspect that there might be drugs. We know that there's a narcotic involved in this, but Narcan's not going to hurt at all, is it? What's part of the coma cocktail? What? Narcan is part of it. We've got the oxygen on already. What else goes with it? You checked the blood sugar. What are you going to do with that information? See if she needs some D50. Okay, that would change. Um, and that's what this is, D50. What's Ramazicon? Yeah, yeah, this is the agonist for benzodiazepines. So is she on any? Yeah, we don't really know at this point. But chances are we're not carrying this stuff anyway because this has to be done in a very controlled setting. Uh, thiamine? It's part of the coma cocktail. No, it won't hurt at all. Glucagon? Yeah, that goes along with the D50 thing. Uh, what about atropine? Well, it's 48. You'd do it or you'd chat up medical control about it. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd discuss this with medical control, wouldn't we? It's something to think about, and I don't think you're on the wrong path at all, Leon. I just, I just think you should consult a physician before you push this stuff. Uh, what, what would be the issue if you gave this to her? Well, it's going to elevate her heart rate. What else is it going to do? Yeah, it'll do that. could. Something about atropine that's going to change her presentation dramatically other than her heart rate. What's it going to do to her eyes? Oh, they're going to dilate off the charts. I mean, they're going to fully dilate with this stuff. And we mentioned sodium bicarb. That's certainly consideration. Um, what information would you want to know before you push the bicarb? Blood gas is probably going to be the definitive thing. Now, yeah, it is the treatment of choice for the tricyclics. That will make her acidic. But usually we want some guide to go by, and they're going to want a baseline set of uh, blood gases to find out exactly what's tilted and where and they'll monitor that pretty closely when they go into the bicarb thing. So good, good thinking through most of that stuff. Well, you know the whole thing that surrounds poisonings. This is something that can be deliberate, it can be accidental, 
And it's only going to involve a small percentage of the calls you go on. You know, only about 9% of what you respond to uh, are going to be in this variety. But it does lead to a large amount of deaths. Most of the people we deal with in this are young. Okay? This is the leading cause of death for people less than three years of age. So, and in most cases like that, it is an accidental sort of situation. Accidental to the point the kid gets into something they shouldn't have, but with some childproofing and some controls in the home, um, it might have been avoided. Uh, nobody mentioned poison control centers. What's the deal with poison control centers? Chances are when you interact with medical control, they're going to get poison control online and they're going to interact with them. Now, back in the day, and you keep hearing me go back a ways, there were only a couple poison control centers in the United States. Rocky Mountain Poison Control was the only one west of the Mississippi River, and that was the one that we used. So before the internet, before computer networking and stuff, we had to have a hotline to dial in to what was essentially a great big telemarketing place that dealt with poisons. Okay? They would, you would identify the poison, you would give them some sort of idea of how much and when, and then they would go through uh, that information and give you advice on how to manage it. And it didn't matter if it was a pre-hospital case, an in-hospital case. It didn't matter what your level of training was. They had advice for all of you. So that's the way it worked. Well, now every ER is tapped into poison control. It's a network sort of thing. It's an online deal, and it's available 24 hours around the clock. And it's certainly decreased the amount of time that you have to wait for information. Because a lot of times you would be on hold for a little bit and you would go back and forth. And this conversation might take place over 15 or 20 minutes before you had the information that you needed to proceed with your patient. So, um, basically, you, the who, what, when, where, how much, and you pass that along to medical control who's uh, going to get in touch with poison control and they're going to have some information for you on whether you should begin treatment immediately or if this is something that they're going to need to do in the ER. But it happens very fast on this. All right, you know how the poisons get in there. And this is part of the how. You know, what route did this lady ingest these toxins? Okay. Um, we're just assuming that she ingested them. All right, she ingests these regularly. Um, what information that surrounds the ingestion of her toxins on a daily basis would you need to know? Yeah, what is she supposed to be taking and on a regular basis? Okay, so the script is going to give you an idea of whether she's taken too much or too little. Now, Information contained on a prescription, it'll tell you the date it's filled and it will tell you how many were put into this particular bottle. So you can look at that and you can compare that with the amount of time she's to take it per day and you can pour those out and count them to see if she's way ahead of schedule, way behind schedule, 
or if that bottle is empty, it'll give you some indication of how many she might have ingested, at least at this moment. Now, we always err on the side of caution there, so we're going to overestimate this stuff for the most part, simply because overtreatment uh, is not going to be a problem in this case. Okay, this isn't a situation where you would hold back on anything uh, because you were uncertain. So most of the treatments that, that you do uh, are pretty benign. And you've heard me say that even if we aren't certain, even if the patient says, I was lying, I was kidding, I was just trying to get my boyfriend's attention, they're going to turn them inside out anyway. Okay? They're going to put them through every step of the process, torture them, if you will, to one, leave a lasting impression on them that you don't want to do this again, but two, they don't know what the situation is, and they're going to completely eliminate everything from their system at that point, whether they were kidding or not. So that's erring on the side of caution in a situation like that. You can't wait one or two more hours to find out if she alters further. Um, it may be too late at that point, and in particular with those, those tricyclics. Okay, so ingestion, inhalation, injection, absorption. Well, in the case we're looking at, ingestion is the most likely cause, but she also could have injected some of this somehow. Um, absorption, I doubt it. Uh, what about inhalation? Paint? Yeah, you would see something, but, you know, inhalation can be, you know, huffing on this stuff. It could be accidentally inhaled. It could be smoked. Okay. Do you think a 57-year-old woman would chop her pills up and smoke them? Which ones would she smoke? The green ones? <laughs> yeah. I doubt it. I doubt it. All right, okay, so you can see the toxicological breakdown here, accidental uh, doses errors, and this is a huge issue with the elderly, okay? Um, grandma took her pills right on schedule, and then she got busy or talked on the phone, and she thought, man, I need to take my medicine before I go to bed, and she forgot she dosed herself already. And some of the medications they take have to be administered in a specific range, and if they get too toxic with it, particularly the digoxins, uh, it can be uh, a problem. The other issues with elderly and dosage errors are they may have many different physicians, and the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. So this specialist has prescribed lenoxin, and the next specialist has prescribed digoxin. Now, to the untrained eye, this looks like two different drugs, and in fact, the way they're manufactured, depending on whose trade name it comes under, it could be a red pill and it could be a white pill. They look distinctly different. They're the same thing. So grandma's doubling her dose up simply because uh, she doesn't understand that this is the same drug and all these physicians uh, involved don't know what's going on. Thank you. <laughs> That's not elderly, huh? Yeah, it does happen. Um, you'll be su 
surprised at, at the, the questions you will get by people when you're in their homes of, what is this? You know, I was just told to take it. Now, a lot of pharmacies now are, are providing the patients with readouts and information, but the, the sad fact is this could be two or three pages of, of, of small typed information and they may not read through it as, as well as they should. So, uh, idiosyncratic reactions, idiosyncratic reactions, what would that be? Not strong enough, so let's have, you know, if one's good, two would be better. Okay. Uh, childhood poisonings, we've addressed that. Environmental exposures, yeah, that fits into toxins, but usually it's not medications. And then occupational exposure, which is something that you could get into, uh, as well as workers on the job, farmers in the field, um, situation like that. Drug and alcohol abuse, yeah, they're always a contributing factor to some of this. Uh, intentional poisonings, well, we think mostly of the suicide attempts or, or that sort of thing. But look at this, chemical warfare and assaults and homicides. So, yeah, it can be intentional, but it doesn't necessarily have to be at the hand of the person uh, who is impaired by this. So this could have been some sort of drugging of someone intentionally drugging someone and they weren't aware of it. So once again, your environment, the situation, these are all thoughts that you need to have in your mind when you're wandering through the scene and collecting your information. You know, everybody's a suspect, everything's a possibility in a situation like this, so you, you know, the, 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 the problem here would be to just tunnel in on, well, this was deliberate, she took too much, and that is the problem. Don't fall into that trap because you will get fooled sooner or later uh, as to what's actually going on. So the nice part about this is we really may not have to get too aggressive in the field with it. You know, for the most part, they, they, they require just supportive therapy, which will be airway, breathing, circulation sort of things, oxygen, O2, IV, monitor, uh, and bring them in, but bring the information with you. That's the most valuable part of this puzzle, is the drugs and the who, what, when, where, and how. So keep an airway, keep them ventilated, keep them circulated. Um, get as much information as you can on your sample and your OPQRST. Uh, do a thorough exam, uh, particularly if they're altered. You know, once again, there may be clues hidden somewhere along the line. Consider the hypoglycemia. You should always consider that in anybody who's altered. So that would be the blood sugar and the possible D50. And if there is respiratory depression, you always have to consider the fact that there could be a narcotic uh, present and it could be uh, a problem. Where do you get this information? Well, hopefully the patient can provide you with that. But know this, if this was deliberate and it came at the hand of the patient, the information you get may or may not be true. They may not be telling you the whole truth. They may be giving you just half of the truth. So keep that in mind. Answer your own questions if you can. If the patient can't communicate with you, then uh, bystanders would be your next choice. And hopefully that's family who knows something about them 
or the people who are on the scene that may have witnessed what's going on. Uh, communicate as soon as possible with medical control. Uh, they'll be able to advise you on where to go uh, and how to handle this situation. Um, people who deliberately overdose just don't spontaneously get admitted to the psych ward for therapy. If there's any medication or any drug on board, they're going to spend a night probably in the ICU. Uh, they're going to be monitored very closely for a minimum of 24 hours before they decide to do anything else with them. They're going to wa watch very closely what, what goes on. Uh, vital signs, so not only your baseline vitals, but you need to trend those out as this patient spends time with you. So two to three sets would be appropriate in a situation like this. Uh, get a cardiac rhythm strip, you know, and if you suspect that this has an effect on the cardiac cycle, then, you know, you'll probably do a 12 lead. I know you haven't gotten into that yet, but uh, it, it would be an important piece of initial information to bring with you. Bring the samples, bring the containers. Um, and make sure you keep yourself safe. All right, by ingestion, as you can see, this is 80% of the accidental ingestions in the one to three-year-old, and most of this is stuff that they find around the house. This is when I say that, you know, more than 50% of the childhood injuries and illnesses can be prevented in the home if we just pay a little bit of attention. Now, I'm not lecturing to you on that because I raised a few kids. And I know this, that you can have those little dickens by the hand uh, and they're right next to you and they can still find a way to get into trouble. So uh, this isn't lecturing to you, but it's just something to think about if you're child-proofing your home. Uh, poison in an adult, it's usually intentional, uh, but it could be unintentional. An exposure to a chemical in the workplace uh, you know, we're thinking about anhydrous, we're thinking about chemicals, but one of the most common ones, and I've read about it in the paper the last week or so, uh, is carbon monoxide. You know, particularly in the cold months, you know, where, where things are enclosed. But there's been a couple deaths recently uh, of workers, you know, working on vehicles in their garage and they're overcome by carbon monoxide. So, you know, this is fairly common out there and something that you need to protect yourself from. Uh, toxic effects, well, that lends itself to what, when, and how much. You know, is this going to be a, a, an immediate effect or is it going to be somewhat delayed? And really that depends on what they've, they've taken and the fact that uh, you've identified it and brought it with you. All right, early management is going to uh, focus on getting this stuff out of the gut. Okay, so this is where the lavages come in place, and this is where the charcoal comes in. How many of you have witnessed a gastric lavage? Pumping your stomach is what they call this. That's the lay term for it. But this simply involves putting a great big hose in your nose and down into your tummy and filling you full of saline, about three liters of it. Okay, they flush it in and they pull it out. They've got a system that is hanging, and it has three-liter bags of saline and dual pumps on it, and they'll place this tube down your nose, and it's a big one, and then hook up to it, and they'll flush 
the saline down into your belly and then they'll extract it and they will continue to do that until it is clear. Any particles or matter that they extract from your stomach will be analyzed. Okay, they're looking for pill particles or any of the substance that could be in there. Once that is done, then they fill you full of charcoal. Okay, activated charcoal. And for the adult, it's going to have sorbitol in it, which is a potent laxative. So not only is this charcoal going to absorb whatever toxins are left in the GI tract, it's going to move through very quickly, absorbing stuff as it goes. So this is not a pleasant experience by any stretch of the imagination. All right. Um, identify the effects. Now look at here, respiratory, cardiovascular, nervous system. Well, how are we going to know that this stuff is changing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, you do. You regenerate that stuff pretty quickly. And if you're talking about an electrolyte imbalance and, and some of that, uh, you know, eventually you get stuff in there, you know, food particles and pill particles and the things you're looking for. And then eventually it turns kind of yellow. It's kind of violation, you know, the digestive stuff. is, And then eventually it's clear. So that's, that's what they'll go for. And they're never really certain if the yellow stuff is a toxin or if it's just naturally produced. I mean, they can test and find out, but, you know, they don't have that kind of time. But uh, it doesn't take too long to balance that out again. So, yeah, if you're worried about that, um, the chances of it happening in this are pretty slim. You know, they would have to be pretty well depressed and... Um, immunodepressed and, and things like that to begin with for this to be harmful to them. You know, certainly the toxin is, is the threat and that's going to be more harmful than, than what we're up to here. Well, respiratory system, cardiovascular, central nervous system all hinges on your assessment. That's where your baseline vitals and the information that you gather comes from. So this is why this is important. Do not blow this off and just write it off to the fact, well, this is an overdose, I know what it is, we'll take them in, it's no big deal. All right? They will alter, and the ones that alter the most are going to be the little people. These are the ones that fool us the most often. Most of the time when we look at adults, you know, we can tell what's going on. The general impression of a child one of the things that's the most misleading is when they've ingested some toxin because they will look absolutely normal and fine to you. They'll be bouncing around laughing and giggling and they won't look like a thing's wrong with them. And 20 minutes later, they can be in a coma. So it's very important for you to get the baseline information of when you find them so they can track that to see how they're beginning to change. It may be something very, very subtle and it's related to these systems. So respiratory rate, a big indicator. Cardiovascular system, well, that's your vital signs. So your blood pressure, your pulse rate, and your rhythm strips are, are really important. The central nervous system, what are we looking for there? Yeah, their level of consciousness is, is, is a big indicator. And what else? Pupils, motor function, okay. So all of that, you know, are they losing their coordination? Are they getting wobbly? Are they unstable at this point? 
things can happen. I had a, a college-age girl who was fighting with her boyfriend, and she swallowed a bottle of Ambien. And Ambien is a sleep aid, and it's non-narcotic. And what we know about this is it will knock you into la-la land very quickly. But then you come up out of it fairly soon. Now, they went to a controlled release variety of this because a lot of the insomniacs complained that, man, it put me to sleep very quickly, and I stayed asleep for about four hours, but then I woke up and couldn't get back to sleep without taking more of it. So they went to a controlled release. Well, this girl had swallowed a bottle of this, and she was kind of acting out to her friends. This was all over a boy, and... I, you know, it was no big deal. I'm not carrying you out of here. Let's walk to the ambulance. We're going to the hospital. And uh, she sat on the squad bench, and we had a nice conversation. And about eight miles into this trip, suddenly she's wobbly. You know, we're turning corners, and she's uh, to the point where she can't sit up. Well, my impression is there might be a little bit of acting going on here. Uh, until we arrived at the hospital, and I asked for a wheelchair uh, rather than, than wheel her in on the cot, and it was all I could do to get her out of the ambulance. I mean, she had absorbed enough of this Ambien at that point to where uh, she was so unsteady and unstable on her feet that uh, we got her in in the wheelchair, but they, they immediately had her up on a gurney and stuff. So. And this was in the span of about 15 or 20 minutes. So things can change pretty quickly. Uh, it probably would have absorbed some of it, but I doubt it would have stopped all of it. Um, it certainly would have kept her from uh, absorbing more of it, which incidentally is what they did with her. Uh, I did consult them on what they wanted me to do, and they said, just wait till you get her here, and, and we'll do it. Part of the issue with activated charcoal is it's difficult to get them to, to swallow it. It doesn't taste very pleasant, and it's black, and um, so typically they put it down through this NG tube. Yeah, yeah, I've ruined a few uniforms. My wife has ruined a lot of uniforms with this stuff. So it's about once a month on the weekends, she'll trash a uniform with this activated charcoal. Working in a university town is, is... All right, hypotension, hypertension. So you're following uh, the blood pressures. All right, and here's the who, what, when, where, and how much. Uh, has an antidote or activated charcoal been given? And if this was intentional, is there a history present? Okay, have they attempted this before and by this means? Um, all right, gut decontamination uh, is the goal here. Uh, most of what you are going to carry is going to be the activated charcoal. We stopped carrying the Ipecac simply because it takes too long to act and uh, it may or may not be effective. Plus, it makes them throw up violently which is a hindrance to your airway control, okay? So it's not that they won't use it, but they want to make certain everything's controlled uh, once they get them into the hospital, which might require them uh, being intubated. Uh, the lavage, 
stuff that uh, we would give it for. Uh, any non-toxic wood products, um, it will absorb just about anything, but it needs to be given within the first hour. Okay, anything beyond that, um, basically you're not going to catch it. It's already been absorbed through the small intestine and the charcoal is probably going to be ineffective at that point. We don't use it for acids, alkali, ethanol, um, cyanide, ferrous sulfate, or methanol. Okay, what's ethanol? Yeah, ethyl alcohol, so that's pretty much booze. All right, what's methyl, methanol? Yeah, wood alcohol, and that can be in a lot of products. Um, more commonly, it's uh, uh, antifreezes and um, windshield wiper fluids and, and stuff that doesn't freeze. Okay, the lavage, um, again, that needs to be within the hour of ingestion. Well, typically, uh, these people will do this over a, a span of time. So you may get some of it, you may not get all of it, but the idea is to slow down the rate of absorption. <coughs> Large bore orogastric tube, I don't know what the size is, but I know it's big as your thumb. Um, having nosebleeds from this stuff getting put down is very common. People hate this thing. Um, a tube is polite, we call it a nose hose, it, it, it is very large. so. And it needs to be for the amount of stuff that goes in and out of it. The smaller ones that might be a little more pleasant, all the particulate matter would get caught in it and, you know, it would be ineffective. Uh, contraindications uh, would be an altered LOC or an unprotected airway. Uh, low viscosity agents, um, that gets into to some of the hydrocarbons and things like that to where uh, it might not be effective in, a, in that situation. Ipecac, as I said, we very seldom carry it in out, out of the hospital settings. It was back in the late 80s, early 90s um, that a bad batch of this rolled through. It's made from eucalyptus and it actually killed a couple kids. So they slowed us down with it at that point in time until they got the lot off the streets that, that was uh, contaminated. And ever since then, we have, we have questioned its validity in the pre-hospital setting. Um, we hated doing that out there because you would often do it at the house, and by the time you got them to the hospital, they had made a mess out of the back of your ambulance. So, uh, I mean, it, that this is a violent procedure. Most of the people I used this on were little kids who were pretty cooperative with it, but it did take a while for them uh, to decide whether they were going to throw up or not. Now it's still available, you know, and most families with little kids in the home have some of this in the medicine cabinet. You can buy it over the counter at the drugstores. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a common product. Um, has to be given within 30 minutes. Uh, complications, well, as I said, it doesn't work all the time, so you wait 20 to 30 minutes to see if it works and then give a second dose, and you wait another 20 minutes to see if it works. Well, in the meantime, uh, you used up that 60-minute window. All right, acids and alkalis. What you're looking for here, 
and, and what we're going to focus on now is, is the areas, the things that you're going to get into. The treatment is, is going to be pretty similar. All right. You may have to do some cardiac dysrhythmias and stuff like this, but for the most part, the treatment is going to be the same. The who, what, when, where, and how, and then we're going to decontaminate the gut. So um, whether that begins with you or if it waits till the hospital, it just depends on the time factor and how cooperative your patient's going to be with you. <coughs> Acids and alkalis, you look for burns around the mouth, into the mouth, into the esophagus. Um, sometimes you'll get some respiratory effects. They may be a little wheezy, a little <laughs> rattly. Uh, they'll talk about a burning sensation in their mouth and their nose. Um, it can damage the mucous membranes and the intestinal tract, so we want to get that neutralized and out of there as quickly as possible. So emergency care would be to get them in as, as best as you can. Now we have to be careful with some of this stuff. Um, you know, the last one I had that got into this was a 16-year-old girl. And her and her girlfriend got in a fight over a boy. It was you? They were fighting over you, Leon? Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> However, um, the one girl got so upset, she left school, drove home, and grabbed some toilet bowl cleaner and proceeded to chug about three or four great big gulps in an effort to kill herself. Well, this didn't kill her, but it really did a number on her esophagus and her airway. Um, she kept complaining about, you know, my throat burns, my throat's really sore, and I said, well, I bet it is. Um, they tried to get us to give her charcoal right away to, to see if we couldn't absorb and neutralize some of it, and she wouldn't drink it, so um, we just basically got her in, and then they went to work with the, uh, the tubes and, and all the things like that. Uh, typically, you don't see it in that age range. Um, if you do, you need to question whether this was intentional or somebody inflicted it upon them. Um, yeah, it's pretty gutty to do something like this. Uh, where you do see it uh, is in little kids, where they get a hold of this stuff and they, they don't know what they've got. So typically, um, you know, this is where you're looking for the burns around the mouth and so on and so forth. Hydrocarbons, your house is full of these things. Um, this can be in cosmetics, it can be in sprays. Um, this stuff is all over the place and, and they can get a hold of it. Petroleum distillates, you know, paint thinners and things like that. Um, very common for little kids to get into this stuff. So, coal oil, plants, um, the hydrocarbons uh, I've seen uh, involved little kids and one drank some uh, that fuel you put in lamps, you know, the fuel oil that, that you would put in a lamp. It, it's pink. So she thought it looked like it was something that would taste good and, and and the other one, uh, Dad, in his infinite wisdom, put some charcoal starter fluid in a pop bottle. And once again, it being pink, the three-year-old come along and thought, boy, this ought to be good, and took a couple chugs of that stuff. And 
So, when we had them in the ambulance, um, their breath, you know, when you have a drunk person in the back of your ambulance, the, the, the amount of alcohol, the odor threshold is enormous. Well, with these little kids, it was the same way um, with these hydrocarbons. So, all right. Um, ingestion may vary depending on the agent involved. Uh, the good news is, is that they don't taste very good. So when the little kids get involved in this, they usually don't ingest a whole lot of it because as soon as they get it up to their mouth, they figure out that it doesn't taste good and they either spit it out or they stop at that point. Now they may swallow a little bit. Um, I've had a lot of cases where they suspected she might have swallowed it, but they weren't certain how much. And as it turns out, probably very little, if any at all, but you know, they still put them through their paces. Um, it can be an immediate or a delayed onset depending on what it is and how much they got in. Um, aspiration, you know, airway is always your concern. So if they're coughing, if they're crying, uh, if they vomit when they swallow, then you have to cons uh, consider that uh, they've gotten some of this and it may have gotten into the lungs and, and they may have aspirated. Uh, airway breathing circulation. Uh, emptying the, the GI tract is usually contraindicated with this, so uh, they may try to absorb this. This is really about the only way uh, to get this out. So as far as lavaging it, that, that may make it more mobile. So uh, at this point, it will probably be um, charcoal. All right, methanol or wood alcohol. You see this in antifreezes, um, windshield washer fluids, paints, paint removers, varnishes, can fluids, fuels, anything like that. Um, alcoholics may drink this as a substitute for ethyl alcohol. All right, you see that. But where we see more, more of it is the bad news with this stuff is it tastes good. Okay, this is sweet and it tastes good. Antifreeze and things like that. Uh, your animals will get into this, and your kids will get into this. And this isn't this isn't as bad of a deal as some as the hydrocarbons because they may swallow two or three mouthfuls of this before uh, they decide that it isn't what they thought it was. But it just doesn't have the bitter, terrible taste the other stuff. So uh, basically. Um, we're going to have to get this out of their system. And this is one of the, uh, what this is going to do is it will create a metabolic acidosis and such a shift in their acid-base balances that um, it'll eventually start killing cells and, and, and lead to their death. Um, CNS depression, GI irritation, the visual complaints. Uh, this is an interesting thing because they'll, they'll tell you it's like they're in a snowstorm like they're in a blizzard. They have these white spots that'll be circling around in front of their eyes and eventually it just turns to like white static and they can't see anything. So that's the, the visual stuff that goes along um, with the methanol stuff. Um, support them. Uh, GI irrigation is only going to happen if it's within the hour. They'll correct the, the acidosis with sodium bicarbonate and basically what we have to do is, this is another case for a whiskey drip. 
um, they're going to use ethyl alcohol because methyl alcohol will bind with ethyl alcohol and it will stop this conversion and they will excrete it. So this is where they'll mix up some type of alcohol drip. It's a, usually a 10% solution and put them on it. Now, if this is an adult or something, they may have them drink some of it right away uh, to try and slow this process down. So um, this is another reason that, that they may have some um, ethyl alcohol in your ERs. And I doubt they have you do it. You know, I have seen it done, but um, I've not had the pleasure of getting to do this in the pre-hospital setting. So, uh, one, I don't carry alcohol with me, so it would be impossible unless they had something at the scene. But uh, I have seen this done in... in not not anymore. <laughs> All right, ethylene glycol, colorless, odorless stuff. Again, windshield washers, detergents, paints, uh, radiator antifreeze, kind of along the same thing. And you know, it's got a sweet taste. Kids like it, um, and alcoholics may substitute it. It doesn't take a whole lot of this stuff to kill them. You know, about 10 cc's in a kid, um, depending on their size, and this is fatal. Uh, 60 cc's in an adult. So, you know, there's, what, 30 cc's in a shot? So, you're looking at <laughs> not very much of it before uh, it, it's lethal. They go through a process with this, three stages. Um, usually in the first 12 hours, it'll affect the central nervous system. Uh, stage two is at the 12 to 36 hour range and it starts to make the heart more irritable. Uh, the breathing will be more of a problem. And then in the third stage, after 24 to 72 hours, it'll shut down the kidneys. And at that point, um, they're not going to live very much longer. Uh, gastric ablational charcoal will happen within the first hour uh, for us. IV fluid, sodium bicarb, uh, 80 proof alcohol is, is what, what the treatment is for this. So uh, once again, um, they'll mix up one of these drips and, and, and put this in. You can consider thiamine. Uh, this would probably only benefit the chronic alcoholic that uh, is substituting this for uh, ethyl alcohol. Calcium gluconate, Valium, lorazepam, if it's indicated, you would probably, you know, the reasons that this is coming up is uh, somebody is in the DTs and uh, the rum fits at this point and they've just grabbed whatever they could get their hands on and is using it for a substitute. So uh, if the seizures and things are present at that point, then we would treat those accordingly. Uh, isopropyl alcohol, uh, this happens... Uh, also from time to time. This is, you know, those little alcohol wipes that you uh, clean yourselves before you stick each other with the needles and the IVs. Uh, that's where this stuff, you can also get it in bottles, um, but it's very flammable, it's very volatile. Um, it's in a lot of disinfectants, degreasers. Um, sometimes you know, you know, moms used to sponge their kids with it when they had fevers. 
you know, because it evaporated quickly and it cooled them, but, you know, through absorption, this could become a problem. So they've recommended moms not to do this anymore, um, as the kid may absorb this through the, the skin. Uh, at any rate, um, this is less toxic than the methanol or the ethylene. Uh, the lethal dose is quite a bit higher. And basically, the body's going to metabolize this a little bit differently. Uh, it will change it to an acetone, kind of a ketonic sort of stuff, and it's excreted by the kidneys and the lungs. So w when you get in there, if this process is going on, you're going to smell uh, this acetone and ketone stuff in the air. It'll be very fruity. Um, the air will be full of this stuff because it's coming out through their lungs. They'll be breathing rather quickly at this point, trying to blow this stuff off. Signs, the usual. They may have some bloody vomit, um, hypovolemia. Uh, yeah, it can cause a shift in some dehydration and, and stuff like all alcohols will. It depends. It depends on. Yeah, yeah. I doubt that they they will let you do it in a situation like that, uh, particularly when when you tell them that that they're vomiting. Vomiting is kind of a contraindication for that stuff anyway. Uh, so, you know, consult your medical control. You know, you're you're getting between the devil and the deep blue sea there. You know, I mean, it may be about the only thing that, that you can try at this point. So, you know, consult medical control. Don't do it on your own and, and see. But chances are they'll probably say no if they're vomiting. So get them in. Get them in. Rapid transport with this. Fluid resuscitation if needed, although don't delay transport to get these IVs started. Just um, get them in. And this, the isoprop isopropyl alcohol, uh, ethyl alcohol won't help this, so this wouldn't be a case for the whiskey drips and, and things like that. Metals, um, you don't see as much of this anymore since they took lead paint off the market, but back in the, the 70s and the early 80s, there was a lot of lead paint poisoning that kids would uh, eat this stuff and, and they would be poisoned by the lead. Uh, iron is still pretty popular, and the last iron overdose I had was, was a little girl, and mom had brought home the groceries, and she put them on the floor, and the little girl got into them, and what do you suppose she found in there? Yeah, Flintstones vitamins, and which, which has a little bit of iron in them, but she was being a good girl, and she ate the whole bottle. So, and then... It, being the good girl she was, she told mommy, mommy, I'm good, I ate my vitamins, and, and she had eaten all of these things. So uh, the issue there, of course, is the iron that, that's contained in these things, and, and that can be toxic at that point. So typically this is where you see the iron overdose. Now you can see it in adults who take a lot of supplements and, and uh, don't have routine blood levels drawn to see where their iron is at. You know, it can get up to uh, very high levels. Mercury poisoning, well, you know, you don't see a lot of those in thermometers and that stuff around anymore, but 
Um, there were some issues with it for a while, but I haven't seen a mercury overdose in, in, in a long, long time. So, iron poisoning, um, about 10% of this is absorbed through the small intestine and then it's stored as a protein. It's transported to the liver and the spleen and then into the bone marrow and then it's incorporated into the hemoglobin. I mean, if, if you're a little bit anemic, uh, iron's a good thing because it creates more red blood cells and, you know, hemoglobin uh, is an iron binding protein that, that the oxygen attaches itself to and that's the whole purpose of taking this stuff. When there's too much of it, then it winds up in places that it shouldn't. Uh, it's very corrosive. Um, this will cause severe constipation, uh, irritation to the GI tract. You may see bloody vomit, bloody stools, um, cardiovascular collapse if it's just huge amounts of it. Uh, and it will kill them within 12 to, to 48 hours, and that's if there's more than 20 milligrams per kilogram on. That is a lot uh, of that. Basically, you're going to support whatever's in front of you. So airway, breathing, circulation, O2, IV, monitor, uh, get them in, but the who, what, when, where, and how uh, is going to be the key here. Lead poisoning. Um, 1978, the late 70s, as I said, this, this became a huge problem and it was through lead paint. Um, other than that, we, we don't see too much of it anymore. Um, it is possible to get into it. Uh, anemia, weakness, paralysis, seizures, death uh, is where this will lead you. Again, um, supportive care for you, O2, IV, monitor. Um, airway breathing, circulation, find out what you think it was and how much. Um, mercury, kind of the same deal. Fillings, most of those have, have the, they've changed most of the mercury fillings. I doubt any of you at your age have any mercury fillings. It's still possible for me to have some, but I know they've been changed. So. Um, they stopped doing that quite a while ago. So, um, food poisoning. Well, this usually comes in waves, <laughs> and it usually involves more than one person. You know, I've only been involved with this a couple times, and one was a wedding reception sort of thing where they got into something, botulism or something that was in uh, some of the food, and then a football team that, that had traveled into the Cedar Valley for a playoff game that uh, claimed they were given bad food at one of the hotels. And it was never proven in either situation. Uh, it was just suspected, and that's really about all you can do. Um, is suspected, but it, it does seem remarkable that all the people that ate this particular stuff and were at this place at the same time all came down with the same uh, type of illnesses. So, um, basically, we support them. You know, if they've been vomiting, diarrhea, a lot of that, um, 
then O2 IV monitor fluid replacement will probably be a concern in a situation like that. Bring some of the evidence with you if you can. Uh, stool characteristics are a fair question in this um, and other people around you who are ill with the same thing. Plant poisonings are fairly common. Um, again, this usually is a little kid, someone under the age of six, and they get into these plants in the houses and, and can become overcome by it. Uh, there's your Jimson weed mat, so yeah, the anticholinergic crisis. Uh, mushrooms, um, I did have a case of this just a couple years ago, and it was in the spring when you think it would be, and a lady, her son had brought her a couple pounds of mushrooms. He was a mushroom hunter, and she cooked those things up, and, and her and her husband ate them. Well, the husband was fine, but she went into uh, violent abdominal uh, contractions, vomiting, just extremely painful, and it was believed that one of those mushrooms wasn't what they thought it was and uh, created some problems for her. Uh, basically, she was decontaminated, and within a couple hours, everything settled down, and, and she was okay. Uh, alkaloids, the hemlock, the delphiniums and stuff, um, it is possible. Uh, airway breathing circulation, O2 IV monitor, get a sample of the plant if you can and bring that with you, uh, and ask medical control for advice on what to do in this situation. Um, it could very well be that uh, they may have you do some charcoal in this case, but uh, it, it just depends. Inhalation, um, this toxic inhalation depends on what it is. Uh, you know, this can be anything from anhydrous ammonia to carbon monoxide uh, to anything along that line. So. Uh, your safety is the biggest concern in this situation because if somebody uh, walked into this and uh, you could become a victim just as easily. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the, the clandestine meth labs and, and some of the problems that, that surround that. This is one of these cases where toxic gases could be very, very dangerous to you. Get the patient out of there. Uh, surface decontamination is indicated in, in all of these, so uh, depending on what it is, how much, and you know, you, at the very least you have to get their clothes off of them. Uh, they may want you to irrigate them and wash them down and, and then bring them in. So airway breathing circulation, O2 IV monitor, um, pay attention to their eyes. You know, you may have to irrigate their eyes, and we've recommended that you use a nasal cannula and saline for that. Uh, you can put the prongs of the nasal cannula over the bridge of their nose, and it'll drip down into their eyes. Critical care medics in this state carry Morgan lenses, which is kind of a big plastic contact lens that fits in the eye, and you can hook it to an IV bag and, and run that in. But um, just regular specialists don't. They do have those in the ER, but they will have you irrigate their eyes. So, you know, that cannula works pretty good. Just pay attention to where the water is going. You know, you don't want that welling up in their ears, uh, particularly if there's something toxic or caustic that's in that. So, 
you could move the burn out of the eye and then into the ear canal, and um, we don't want to do that. So make certain that maybe you put some 4 by 4s over their ears or uh, you pay attention to where, where it's going. Ammonia, um, we do see this a lot in the spring, and this being our agricultural uh, state, the farmers use anhydrous quite a bit. Uh, this is also a problem with the meth labs. So um, this is a real irritant to the airway as well as the lungs. So just a couple of If you even smell this stuff and it's in a household cleaner, it burns your, your lungs. So you can imagine if it's in a much higher concentrated case. You guys getting ready for a break? Not before lunch? Half hour, keep it going. Just keep going? Yeah. <laughs> How are we doing? We're okay? All right. Um, at any rate, your safety is, is, is what's important here. Um, make certain that you don't walk into a cloud of this or get yourself exposed. Um, if, if it comes to that, make certain the right people are on scene to go in and manage this for you, and that would be people uh, with self-contained breathing apparatus. So um, the fire department comes to mind right away that you could send them in with their turnout gear and their, their um, breathing equipment, and they can bring the patient out to you, uh, decontaminate it, and then let you uh, take over from that. Hydrocarbons, they talk about the viscosity level. Um, basically, it's the thickness of whatever it is. Um, you know, the lower um, it, it is, the greater the risk would be. Um, it will get into the lungs, and that's where the problem is going to happen. Uh, it will be absorbed systemically through the lungs at that point. Once it gets down in there, and, you know, it's just like on the alveoli and you know with that capillary uh, interface going on down at the bottom of the pulmonary tree uh, then this thing gets into the bloodstream and goes completely systemic so that would be the, the problem. You can see this is often from the huffing, the toluene, the benzene and stuff um, so yeah teenage kids who are breathing, deliberately breathing this stuff this, this will be a problem although this toluene um, about every hazmat placard that I see go through uh, on interstates and stuff, one of them has toluene in it. So it, it's an industrial solvent for, for something. So it's fairly common um, and, and it's around. So you could run into this at the scene of a, a motor vehicle accident. Um, roll over a tanker truck or, or something along that. Hydrocarbons. Well, we've talked about this. Um, basically, these are all the signs and symptoms that, that could go along with that. Uh, altered color perception. Um, yeah, it depends on that, but there will either be a purple hue or a yellow hue is, is what they see. Um, usually, it's halos around lights and bright things. and um, They may see a haze of uh, purple, or they may see a haze of yellow. So if they're describing that to you, then, then that might be a, a clue. Airway breathing circulation, consult. 
injections, well, drug abuse, um, make sure you check and check the uncommon areas for the needle tracks and stuff. Um, not all of them are in the antecubital fossa. You may find these in various parts of the body that, that you wouldn't suspect. But probably the more common injection is a bee sting, you know, when we get into to animals. So these injections can come through uh, bites and stings, snake bites, uh, anything like that that bites you and injects poison into you um, is a possibility. So your environment's going to give you a clue. Your patient's going to give you a clue. So if this is a, an intentional drug injection, then the environment you're in and the people you're around will probably give you some indication of what you're dealing with. If this happens to be a sting or a bite or something, most of the time the patient was aware of what had happened. Um, in the case of brown recluse spiders, they may not be aware that they've been bitten. I mean, that's such a, a small, benign bite, but uh, turns ugly in a hurry. Um, they may not be aware of what happened. All right, depending on the venom, um, it can be local, can be toxic, can be systemic, and it can be delayed. Local simply means it's, it's at a spot they were bitten and that's where it's at. It's not moving anywhere, it's just in a local area. Toxic, it just depends on the type of venom it is as to what it does. You know, some of, it, some of the toxic venoms just sting and burn a lot and they will continue to do that for several minutes until they're either neutralized or washed away. Um, others are so toxic and caustic that it will kill the skin tissue and everything in the area around it. So depending on what that is, and we hope that we avoid it from getting systematic. Um, if it goes systemic, then you're going to see some type of reaction that will be similar to anaphylactic shock. So this could swell the throat, this could swell the tongue, this could uh, mimic an asthma attack or um, just put them in a full-blown reaction uh, like that. And then it could be somewhat delayed. You know, it happened, but uh, several hours from now, um, something's going to take place. Um, Hymenoptera, well, you know, spider bites, uh, stings, uh, bees. Um, this is a bee, Hymenoptera. It's usually on the foot, the leg, the hand, or the arm. Um, you know, most of these people know that they're allergic to them or have had a reaction in the past. Uh, they may or may not have EpiPens with them, uh, depending on where they're at in the sensitivity cycle. You know, the first time they got stung, they may have gotten some itches and some hives but they haven't gotten to the point where it's attacked their respiratory system yet, so, you know, this could be the event that, that touches that off. So look for the local signs uh, and keep evaluating vigorously for the anaphylactic signs. Uh, management, elevation, remove the stinger. How do we get the stinger out? Yeah, you scrape this out. You don't want to pinch it. You don't want to tweeze it. Um, anything like that. Usually the venom sac is attached at the back of that, so any pinching or tweezing of that is going to inject more venom into the patient. So essentially you scrape this off with your driver's license or a credit card or something 
And um, that, you know, it's not that that won't put more venom into them, but it won't put as much. So monitor and transport. Black widows. Um, what can I say about that? Uh, usually two fang marks about a millimeter apart. Um, this usually won't kill them, but it will cause some very uncomfortableness. You know, flu-like symptoms, muscle spasms, cramps, pain, numbness and tingling, headache, um, sweating. Uh, if they do get into the seizure-type muscle spasms and stuff, then we can sedate them with Valium or Ativan. Um, if they get into hypertensive states, uh, then we'll see what to do about that. But, uh, you know, we don't carry uh, any antihypertensives anymore other than nitro. So morphine will, will lower the blood pressure too, but... Um, Check with medical control on that. Brown recluse is very common to this area. Uh, this is where we see most of, of the spider bites that are of a toxic level. So typically these brown recluse, and you've probably all seen them, are small brown spiders. They've got a violin pattern on their thorax and abdomen, and they're about the size of a dime. Um, they're very common in wood piles and dark places around your house, so under your porch, in your garages, uh, places like that. Usually you don't know that you've been bitten by them. It's typically painless, but in a couple hours you'll start to feel something and it will turn red. Uh, in one to two days it will blister and bullseye, and then in the next 24 to 72 hours all that tissue will die. So um, this can have some central nervous system effects on it too. So this is a six hour bite. So you're starting to see um, the tissue damage uh, that, that's progressing there. Um, fever chills, nausea, vomiting, um, could be some protein in the urine, some hemoglobin in the urine. Um, low blood pressure, uh, and it can kill them. Basically, we support them, cold compress, sterile dressings, transport. How many of you worry about scorpion stings? Not many? Depends on which part of the country you're from. Well, Southwest, Mexico, around in there, this typically happens at night. Uh, it's usually along the desert in a wooded area. Uh, they're most active between April and August. Uh, I believe there was somebody bitten by a scorpion in this state not too long ago. And how do you suppose that happened? Yeah. It wasn't a pet. It came in on a truck. Yeah, there's been a couple of crazy cases like that where um, a truck out of the southwest came in and they were unloading it and they were stung by one of these scorpions that had just hitched a ride from uh, wherever they started from. You'll hear that about scorpions, you'll hear that about some snakes that aren't indigenous to this part of the country that uh, somehow find their way into uh, Iowa from these, these locations. Uh, Arizona, New Mexico, California um, is usually where it's at. 
uh, it will hurt at the, it usually burns along the nerves. Um, this will give you that wet appearance, okay? So the sludge effect uh, goes along with this. So the salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, um, the GI um, upset, and uh, the vomiting, the emesis. So initially they'll have a slow heart rate, then it'll get quick. Uh, you may see some dysrhythmias, some seizures. Uh, their eyes may rove around, uh, roll around, kind of dull eye appearances, and they may talk about some temporary blindness. Uh, cold compresses, they might let you treat them for pain, uh, get them air, pay attention to the airway. Um, ticks, really common in this area. Uh, the Rocky Mountain spotted fever, the Lyme disease, the tick paralysis are the things that we worry about. Haven't seen much of the spotted fever, but we are seeing more and more of the Lyme disease. Um, there was a person up in my area who was uh, inflicted by, with this in May. He was a mushroom hunter that went into the woods to, to hunt for mushrooms and came out of there, and he had Oh, a couple dozen ticks all over him. I mean, 20, 28 of them were found on his body, and and now he's come down with Lyme disease. Yeah, it seems rather stupid to, to let that many ticks on to you, but um, at any rate, spot... Well, yeah, but they respond to it in different ways, you know. It can go so far as to central nervous disorders to where you know, he can't walk, he can't talk, he, like he's stroked, to no problem at all. So it just depends on, you know, how systemic this went and, and when they caught it and, and stuff like that. So each case would be different. You know, they, they can all manifest similar signs and symptoms, but the extent of it is what would vary. Uh, spotted fever, usually within five to seven days of the tick bite. Headache, high fever, loss of appetite. They may see some pink spots on the wrists and ankles. And then eventually it spreads to the whole body and then it becomes petechial. Um, what's petechial mean? Well, they're kind of eruptions, explosions. Um, you know, the skin opens up and you'll, you'll see kind of a, a bursting of the vessels, you know. Uh, it may not open up to where it's an open wound, but underneath the vessels have broken, erupted, and um, it looks like little blood blisters and stuff on, on the skin. Um, if it's untreated, it could kill up to a fourth of these people. Lyme disease, and most of the common ones around here are deer ticks, and that, that, that's where we seem to uh, get into it. Basically the same pre presentation, it's kind of flu-like. Um, and then eventually as it, it continues at four to six weeks, then it gets into the cardiac and the neurological uh, effects. And then the third stage would be this arthritic condition that, that may last for the rest of their life. Uh, tick paralysis, this is usually from a female wood tick. Um, they'll be restless ascending paralysis, so things moving up. Loss of deep tendon reflexes, 
uh, as this paralysis moves up and gets into the respiratory muscles, then uh, this could be fatal. And then once the tick is off, then they seem to get better. Pit vipers, talking about rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, copperheads. Um, that's what's responsible for most of this in, in this country. And basically, they get their name from the pit that's on their nose, um, kind of right in this area here. Elliptical pupils, what's that mean? Yeah, it's kind of that cat's eye thing, you know. They're not round, they're kind of angular. Uh, triangle head, the pit, the elliptical pupils, uh, the rattlesnakes, of course, have the rattles, but basically this is how you identify them. Um, their venom will cause hemolysis, uh, intravascular coagulations, convulsions, renal failure. So, yeah, it will clot up the blood um, and lead to seizures and eventually shut the kid kidneys down. Coral snakes, um, that's the red, yellow, uh, black. Um, they've got round pupils. The venom in these things is very neurotoxic. Um, slurred speech, dilated pupils, dysphagia, eventually leads to paralysis and death. Um, that's what coral snake looks like. Just stay away from these things. Um, move the patient to a safe area, airway breathing circulation, put the IV in the unaffected extremity, um, immobilize them a little bit. We don't want to move it around. We don't want to do anything to promote the spread of this toxin. Uh, avoid ice and cold compresses. Sea life, aquatic life, um, various kinds of things you can get into there. Um, jellyfish, Portuguese man of war. Uh, basically, the, the people get these on, they burn, they sting. What do we do for that? Pee on them. <laughs> Why did I know that was going to come out of your mouth, Matt? <laughs> Yeah, that neutralizes them. That that is. Um, I don't think it'll be in your protocol, though. <laughs> that that will be a lot of paperwork. I guarantee you. If you <laughs> so, what else can you do? Yeah, irrigate. Just just get them off of there somehow. Um, I don't know what it is in the urine that, that makes them release, but it also neutralizes some of the stinging and stuff. So, um, sea anemones, uh, fire corals. Um, basically, we don't see a lot of that in this area. How about you? You? No? Oh, they're there. You mean swimming? Yeah, who's swimming? <laughs> well, that's true. You guys don't get in the in the neoprene suits and swim around in the water at all. How long are those suits good for up there? Either. 
Yeah. Without anything but three minutes. Yeah. Most of the hypothermic tapes that I've seen have come from the sounds in some of the areas up in Alaska, most of the crabbers and, and some of the fishing vessels and stuff. And, um, they were actually wearing the dry suits. And the one fellow who was swept over didn't have it on. He didn't last very long. But uh, the ones that did have them on survived, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was touch and go. All right, that's what these things look like. Um, usually local pain wheels, you know, that's just a swelling, kind of a, a bump that comes up on the skin. Um, nausea, vomiting, flu-like stuff. Uh, can eventually get into some bronchospasms, some pulmonary edema, so at that point you're getting more towards an anaphylactic reaction and eventually into respiratory arrest. Um, Get the tentacles, the fragments off, rinse wound with seawater, isopropyl, uh, baking soda slurries, a shaving cream and shave the area and rinse it again. All of this leads to the stabilization. Now, the last class we had um, a couple divers that were from New Orleans and from Louisiana that were way familiar with this stuff. And um, they go through special classes for... Uh, handling these things. They, they were medics on dive rigs and, and things off the coast down there in the Gulf and um, were very in tune with all of this stuff. So we basically let her teach this part of it. Um, sea urchins, starfish, sea cucumbers. Basically you want to put the limb in very hot water. Um, no warmer than 113, you know, basically I'm not much for anything over 105 degrees, but um, you want it a little warmer than, than, than your bath water. Stingrays, again, not too popular around here. They can be up to 14 feet long. Usually they're in shallow water. A lot of times buried in the sand. Um, the venom can cause some pain, some bleeding. Um, if this stuff goes systemic, then nausea, vomiting, weakness, seizures, paralysis, cardiac arrhythmias until they die. Uh, management, airway breathing, circulation, irrigation, put in warm water, uh, and the analgesics. Poisonings by absorptions. Well, I think this is a good enough time to take a break here. Um, we'll do the absorption stuff after lunch. Any questions on what, what we went through? Yeah, there is a recurrent theme, you've noticed. Um, basically, we handle all of it the same way, but um, we need to address each of these clusters, each of these areas.